Good evening. Tonight we have a collection of some horrifying and chilling stories from a multitude of horror narrator creators. If you enjoy their work, then please be sure to check their link in the description and maybe subscribe. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. Years ago, when I was still a teenager, my friend Justin and I would often go longboarding at night. As my friends and I were quite the night elves, we loved the freedom of almost never seeing another on the roads or the paths we frequented. Even when using main roads, it would be very rare to see a car out so late in such a rural area, and you could always see and hear them coming from a very far away distance due to their headlights and the noise of the vehicle disrupting the peaceful silence of the night. We were really into it at the time and would often ride our boards for miles and miles, sometimes not arriving home until the sun was up. One particular night, we decided to ride a few miles away from our usual back roads to take one of our favourite hidden routes. It began with a narrow, paved path that was the only piece of land separating two sides of a long lake. It would often sink under due to rain and we wanted to seize the opportunity to use it before it rained and went underwater again. It was roughly two miles long and was extremely relaxing to ride through due to the scenery. After making it to the end of the lake, we decided to continue moving and turn into a very close path that leads directly into a densely wooded wilderness preservation. As we came up to the first hill, we looked down at the bottom into the blackness. We both noticed what appeared to be a tiny moving ball of dim light down there. It moved so strangely. It was extremely difficult to make out what it was. Rather than shine our flashlight down, we curiously watched it for a few moments, whispering to each other about what it could possibly be. All at once, the small light turned into multiple blinding lights and extremely loud revving sounds, overwhelming our senses that had become accustomed to the dark and silence. Acting purely on fear, we instantly turned around and ran as fast as we could, hearing yelling and revving gaining behind us. By sheer luck, we managed to run off path into a very dark, very overgrown hole on the side of a hill, overlooking where we had just come from. We decided to hide in the natural dugout of this hill, hoping the plants and darkness would be enough to protect us from whatever was happening out there. We watched our pursuers ride up to where we had originally been standing. There were four men, two on four wheelers and two on full-sized motorcycles. They were yelling at each other about something, but we couldn't make out what they were saying due to the distance we had covered. We felt safe enough to whisper very softly to each other and speculated who these people could be. Their first thought was they might be park rangers of some kind. Although we had never seen one here in the many times we had been here, and honestly, we doubted that this county had the budget or even a desire to have anyone patrol the deep woods at night. Besides that, these men were on vehicles entirely inappropriate for paved bike trails and they were very angry at something. They called out to us for a while, yelling things like, We know you're out there and we can see you, come out. We stayed silent and decided to call their bluff instead of running. Eventually, we clearly heard one of the men yell, Find them now, and smash a bottle. 
That had erased any hope we had that these were just park rangers. We watched them split up, each of them going a different way down a series of paths on their vehicles, including the path we came from. It took us what felt like ages to even move. We were frozen in terror inside that dugout, watching the lights from the vehicles travel through the woods and paths, one of them already coming full circle and passing the point he started from. I thought about calling for help, but I was too afraid to open my mouth in fear that even the smallest amount of light would give away our location. After waiting for the lights of the vehicles to reach the farthest distance yet, we finally summoned the nerve to get up and try to run somewhere far enough from these people to make a call to safety. We ran as hard and as fast as we could through the woods. Since their headlights gave away their location on these paths, we could hide again whenever we felt they were getting too close. Our available hiding spots were getting progressively worse as the woods became less dense, and the fear I felt waiting for one of them to drive past us while basically only being covered in leaves and planes may still be unmatched to this day. Finally, we emerged from the woods onto the intersection of the two main roads, far from where we had started. We ducked down into the ditch to call for help. When I opened my phone, I noticed I had recent missed calls from one of our friends, Connor, who we were supposed to meet up with after our long board excursion. I called him and frantically asked where he was. Locke was with us again, he hadn't given up on our plans despite us ignoring him, and was only a few miles away. Already heading in our direction, I gave him the names of the two streets where we were near the corner of and explained that we needed picked up right away. He agreed to speed over to us while Justin and I waited in hiding. Thankfully, Connor arrived before any of those men did. They bolted into the back seat of his car, yelling for him to get out of there, and he took off. Relief doesn't begin to describe what I felt being safely driven home after everything I had just experienced. After explaining everything that happened to Connor, we ended up just moving on with our night and decided not to call the police. We figured they would have gone by the time any officer had made it out there and we would only be putting ourselves at risks by admitting to breaking the law by taking those paths so late at night. I still have no idea what happened or who those people were. I've been told all kinds of theories from friends and family that have heard this story. Some think we walked right up to a huge drug deal. Justin and I later admitted to each other that even when the revving started, we couldn't see. Our minds both went straight to chainsaw welding horror movie serial killer so I suppose it could have been much worse. Frustratingly enough, whatever those men thought we saw that made them want to catch us so badly, we never actually saw. We'll never really know, I suppose. My Dads Are Werewolves by Princess Parr Hi. I didn't know where else to take this, so I came here. Understand, everything I say is 100% true. My name is Rebecca, I'm 17 years old, and live in the woods with my two technically adopted dads. The way I became their daughter was unconventional, so to speak. Anyway, one morning when I woke up, Dad was not there. Normally I get up about 6.15ish, Shower, get dressed for the weather, come downstairs for breakfast. 
Daddy would make eggs and bacon and toast with a cup of coffee. Dad would already have been up as he tends to get up much earlier than I do. He would be sitting at the breakfast table already, third cup of coffee in front of him, reading the paper, as Daddy finished making my breakfast. However, today was different. Daddy was making my breakfast, but Dad wasn't there. When I asked about it, Daddy replied that he's probably out in the woods or something, before handing me a stack of pancakes and my cup of coffee. After breakfast, we both went out in the woods, over to the outdoor classroom that I've grown accustomed to from when I was unofficially adopted at the age of 10. The air felt different, denser and chillier. Bear in mind, it is late summer here, so it being cold today made no sense. Also, I noticed a wolf I had not seen before. He was big, and bigger than any of the others out here. Bigger than Daddy, who he confidently strolled up to. Rubbing his leg, Daddy bent down, concern on his face, asking if the big wolf was okay. The wolf nodded as if he understood Daddy's words before walking over to me. The wolf stayed there for the entire lesson, with their head resting on my lap. This was unusual, as the wolves tend to come and go as they please, but rarely do they stick around. The wolf came back with us that night, <laughs> even eating dinner at the table. Again, I asked Daddy what was going on. Where was Dad? He smiled sadly and replied, Honey, he is here. When I was about to ask him what he meant, the wolf strolled over to me, then stood up, his body beginning to morph, morph into my dad. I think you're finally old enough to know the truth. When you came to us that day in the woods in fear, telling me what your stepmother did to you, I went to her home as a wolf and brutally murdered her. I did that to protect you because even then, I knew I already loved you. Your daddy and I, we wanted to have a child for a long time before that and could tell you'd be the perfect fit. I... I was so stunned. I didn't know what to say. So he continued. Remember the wolves and how Daddy told you to see them as family? That's because they are. We are wolves, Rebecca. Werewolves. We didn't tell you this at the time because you were not ready to handle it. The people that came the day you were told to hide, they were police officers. A neighbor who heard your stepmother's screams alerted the police. They said when they got there it was a bloody, pulpy mess, and that the child was missing. That they had no leads on who could have possibly done such a thing, and it looked perfectly animalistic what had been done to her body. Then Daddy spoke. We chose to protect you from all this, because you were so young. Right before you knocked at the door that day, we were discussing whether or not one of the wolves could come and live with us. We both love you very much, and only want to protect you, raise you in a home where you were safe and felt loved. 
One of the reasons we had you change your name was so that no one could ask questions when you went into town. They can never know what happened that day. That you have been alive this whole time and living with us. It would raise far too many questions. My head was spinning. I didn't know what to think, let alone how to respond. He continued, I know that this is a lot to take in, sweetheart. Give it a day or two and let it wash over you. We just wanted to tell you. I was just so... so... I can't describe what I was feeling, but it was strong. Then I asked, Was my biological dad there? I was told he ran away when I was eight. Dad looked at Daddy, a sad look on his face. Honey, your bio dad has been dead this whole time. After I was done with your stepmother, my nose picked up something deep within the floorboards. It smelled like you, but mixed with a foul, rotten odor. When I cracked into the floorboard, I found the decomposing body of a man. A man with what looked like stab wounds all over his chest. I think she killed him, and might have killed you if I hadn't have intervened. I am so, so sorry, he said, before hugging me tightly, tears spilling from both of our eyes. We stayed like that for what felt like hours, before Dad picked me up and carried me to bed. When I awoke in the morning, I thought it had all been a dream. No way that could have been real, I had thought. I stayed that way as I took a long, hot shower and got dressed in my flannel, button-down t-shirt, and black skinny jeans. However, as soon as I descended the staircase, I walked into the kitchen, and what happened last night was anything but a dream. Dad was, again in wolf form, eating out of a bowl on the floor, before shifting back into human form, grabbing a cup of coffee from Daddy, and sat down at the table to read the paper, as I sat down, Daddy handed me my breakfast and coffee, the only normal part of the abnormal morning. That night, I was woken up by Daddy and told to get dressed quickly. I groggily grabbed a black t-shirt, a pair of black shorts, and a gray sports bra and went downstairs. I was taken to a clearing in the middle of the woods. No animals were there, not even any of the wolves, though I could feel their presence as if they were on the edge of the woods, watching me. The moon was full and bright, and in the middle was an altar. Daddy walked me to the middle, placing both his hands and mine on the slab. Then he pulled out a small, blunt-looking dagger that looked rusted in the moonlight. Now that you are seventeen, you are old enough to become part of the pack, a part of the family completely. Don't be scared. This will only hurt a little bit. You are safe. I nodded and closed my eyes as Dad slit both my wrists and then his own, pressing them together so the blood would mix. Then he had me take his arm and drink from the blood. He said by doing that, I was changing into what both he and Daddy were. Once the ritual was complete, 
my own body morphed, and I became a werewolf, just like them. Daddy joined us in the middle, morphing into a wolf. Then the wolves in the forest joined us, and we all howled at the moon. So quoth this raven. When I was young, I lived in quite a small town in Queensland. The whole town was surrounded by bush in every direction for hundreds of kilometres, and we had so much room to play. This particular story is about the first time we got drunk. In the winter, the level of water would drop significantly, enough for us to camp in the riverbed. My best mate's parents owned a pub at the time, so we were in charge of getting the drinks for a little camping trip we had planned, so we could finally pop our drunk cherry. The place we had in mind was near an old indigenous settlement where a few creepy things have happened to us over time. So we made our way down there into the riverbank which was low on the side where we came in and really high on the other side. You couldn't see on the other side through all the trees on the top and it was kind of unnerving knowing someone could be up there watching you and you just wouldn't know. There were about seven of us kids in the camp and our parents have no idea what we're doing or where we are. We lied and said we're staying at a friend's place. We set up our camp, and we built a little shelter for all of us to sleep under. We were all set up and started drinking as the sun is setting. Soon it's dark and we're in full swing of mixing drinks and singing songs and throwing stuff in the water, all of that shenanigan, and generally making a whole heap of noise. And as we're starting to wind down, one of my friends say he saw something move at the top of the riverbank, on the steep side. We all say he's full of shit and should calm down, but he's adamant that there's someone up there, so we all start calling out. Come out, you pussy, and other such things. Being brave well beyond our years. To our surprise, a bearded man wearing straggly clothes and no shoes came out of the tree line. He stands on the edge of the bank and just stares at us. We all go silent, waiting for him to do something for about five minutes. But he just stands there, and then he retreats back into the tree line. We all talk amongst ourselves and get a bit nervous, but soon we forget about it. About an hour later, the guy's back, but he isn't on the bank anymore. He's coming out of the shadows from the other side of the bank and entering our camp. He comes over and stands next to the fire, just joins our group of 12-year-old kids and stands there. We're all officially fucking scared at the moment and don't really know what to do, so we just sit there in silence. Eventually, one of my friends gets up the courage to speak to him. G'day mate, how are ya? You okay? The guy just stares at my friend, and then starts staring at each of us in turn for a little bit. My friend tries again. Hey, you alright? What's your name? The man snaps his head back at my friend and stares at him wide-eyed for at least two minutes before answering. Without blinking, he says in a raspy whisper, that's none of your business. And he hisses like a cat. Then this guy just jumps back screaming and staring at the fire like it just appeared out of nowhere and runs out on the steep bank in record time. It was impossible to get up this thing so we all stand there, speechless. We decide that it's best if we just stoke the fire up because it's about a 19k walk in the pitch black back to town and we weren't confident on that. So stoke the fire we did. We sat up for as long as we could, keeping watch. No really talking. We all eventually dozed off one by one, 
when we woke up in the morning, everything was gone. All of our alcohol, all of our bags, all of our shoes and all of our blankets. Everything. The creepy thing was that none of us awoke as someone rubbed us blind and there was not a single footprint. We were sleeping in wettish sand so there should have been footprints everywhere, but there were none. It looked like we hadn't even been there. Needless to say, we bailed and ran most of the way back to town. Our feet were all cut up and messy by the time we got back. We never told our parents about our camping trip, and I don't think none of us ever will. It was dark as I approached the circus tent. There was a full moon in the sky. It's October 31st, All Hallows Eve when the veil between the living and dead is at its thinnest. Excitedly, we all stood in line, pushing and shoving to make sure we got a ticket before they ran out. This only happens once a year, and there are limited tickets. I pushed the tent fabric open with both hands and walked through. To my left, there was a man holding out his hand for payment, and to the right was a woman who handed out the tickets, which had what seat number was yours written crudely on the back of it. A thick fog danced and swirled at my feet. I could barely see it was so dark inside, so I followed the lights along the floor. Each row's number was lit up, so it was just counting my way to my chair from that. I found my chair. It smelled musty and moths fluttered out as I pulled the seat down. Once everyone was seated, a spotlight in the middle of the circus ring came on, focused on the tall, lanky woman in the middle standing upon a stool that looked dangerously small. Her coat barely buttoned up. It was full of holes and her tiny, tattered hat sat crooked on her head. The makeup was running and smearing all over from the sweat pouring down her face. With a powerful strike of her whip, she shouted, Come one, come all to the circus of freaks. Everyone cheered and clapped in their seats enthusiastically. She motioned her long, thin fingers for the first act to come up. She then stepped off the stool picked it up and held it in her left hand while her whip remained in the right. A person dressed as a lion wearing a leash and collar was dragged out from the darkness, kicking and screaming. I covered my mouth as I gasped loudly. I can't believe what I'm seeing. He cried and tried to beg for his life, but the ringmaster cracked her whip, hitting him right in the mouth. The others jumped and cheered in their seats, but I was in shock. The ringmaster took the stool and shoved it in the crying man's face. Watch as I tame this wild beast! She exclaimed and let out a laugh. He put his arms up to protect himself, and everyone started to boo. Bring out the next act! She bellowed into the darkness. Get this pathetic worm out of my ring! Two little green goblins came prancing out, each grabbing one of his arms. Ours now! They giggled as they dragged him back to the darkness. 
Then another set of little goblins came prancing out. The one was carrying a small metal bucket, which they placed underneath a diving board. Now, make sure it's in the correct position. Remember the last time. <laughs> Everyone chuckled, and the goblin blushed. The second tugged on a rope in her hands, which trailed off into the darkness. A woman slowly walked out with her hands bound and her mouth taped. You could tell she had been crying for a while. Her dark hair was a mess, her eyes puffy and red. For my next act, this human will be climbing up this tall ladder and diving into this bucket. The bound and gagged woman frantically shook her head no, but the goblin pushed and pinched at her. She climbed way up the ladder as everybody watched in awe. Standing at the top, she looked down, sobbing as she refused to jump. The goblin in charge of this human quickly scurried up and bit the back of the woman's ankle, causing her to fall and landing on top of the bucket with a thud. Isn't that amazing? The ringleader exclaimed with both arms in the air and a grin on her face that reached from ear to ear. Literally. Her face just about split in half. I had never seen humans before. This really was amazing. Who's hungry? The ringmaster laughed as we all cheered and ran for the flesh. This was an experience like no other, and hopefully next year, I'm able to get another ticket. Hello fellow paranormal enthusiasts, welcome to the true ghost story of the old man in yellow. There is hardly anything more unnerving than being followed by a hideous stranger on a lonely road at night. When the stranger proves to be non-human, but that is getting ahead of the story. It happened a few years ago to a young man named Elwyn Thomas, who happened to be visiting friends in a small village in South Wales. It was a warm June night and darkness was just beginning to fall when he left his friends to return to the country inn where he was staying. Judging by past experience, he reckoned on reaching it by about 9 o'clock. It was exactly 8.30 when he said goodnight. He was completely alone in the gathering dusk and the only sounds were the occasional cries of night birds and the crunch of his own footsteps on the gravel road. Being neither superstitious nor afraid of anything, he walked briskly along, glancing now and then towards the banks of an old canal off to one side of the road. After about ten minutes, he began experiencing a peculiar, creepy sensation as if he were being watched. On an impulse, he stopped, turned around, and grasped involuntarily. There, no more than a yard behind him, suspended in mid-air at eye level, 
was the most hideous face he had ever seen. The putty-colored skin was drawn tightly over the features, except for the forehead, which was lined with deep wrinkles. Thin, seemingly bloodless lips formed a crooked grin over a half-open, toothless mouth. The cheeks were hollow and corpse-like, and the eyes were wild, luminous, and piercing. Wrapped around the ghastly object were two pieces of old yellow calico, one under the jaw and tied atop the head, the other over the forehead and tied behind. Unable to help himself, Thomas turned and began running as fast as he could. After having covered about a hundred yards, he stopped to catch his breath and turned around again. To his horror, the face was still there, as if he hadn't moved an inch. On an impulse, he dropped down, grabbed a handful of gravel, and hurled it at the face, then turned again and ran. When he finally reached the inn, he stopped at the pass leading off the road and looked back again. The head was still behind him. Cautiously, he backed up in the direction of the inn and was surprised to observe that, this time, the head remained above the road, grinning somewhat contemptuously. Taking courage, he decided to go on back and confront the apparition. But, as he approached, the head began receding, its glowing eyes fixed almost malevolently on his own. Now he felt as though he had to follow, down the road he went slowly, like a sleepwalker, until the head disappeared over a stone wall, surrounding a little graveyard not far from the inn. Suddenly, he felt everything begin to spin. Then he lost consciousness. When he came to again, it was late at night. He had lain at the foot of the churchyard wall for more than two hours. Groping through the darkness until he found his way back to the inn, it was with great relief that he finally retired to bed into a restless night filled with bad dreams. When he told the innkeeper about his experience the next day, he learned that he had not had been having hallucinations. An eccentric old recluse, fitting the exact description of the apparition, had once lived in a cottage whose ruins were quite near to the place where the face had disappeared. No one could remember exactly how long the old man had been dead, but they knew it had been many years since he had been last seen alive. Don't move a muscle. The words whispered in my ear roused me from my sleep. After a brief moment of confusion, I recognized the voice as that of my wife. He's been standing there for God knows how long. I think he's waiting for us to wake up. I opened my eyes just a crack, and I saw what had startled my wife. There, at the foot of the bed, was a man. He was large, over six feet tall by a head. He wore a rubber mask 
of a cartoon dog with red, bloodshot eyes. Gripped in his left hand was a duffel bag, which clattered with the sound of metal on metal whenever it shifted in his grip. His right hand held a video camera. At the sight of him, my heart instantly began to race. My brain yelled at me to get up and run, but I forced myself to stay completely still. I became lightheaded as my slow breathing could not keep up with the demands of my racing heart. The phone was on the nightstand just inches away. Would I have time to unlock it and dial 911 before the stranger got to me? Would it even matter if I did? One thing was clear. I couldn't just lay there. I had to act. As quick as I could, I lunged out of bed and threw myself at the man. He was too quick for me, though. He dropped his bag and shoved me back onto the bed. I knelt down and began rummaging inside his bag. He pulled out a long metal rod. He clicked something on the side, and the end of the rod erupted in a crackling shower of sparks. He walked towards me slowly, taking his time. I knew I only had one shot, so I waited. He was almost close enough to reach me now. The rod blazed with electricity. When he was close enough, I kicked out as hard as I could, connecting with his shin. He let out a strangled cry of pain and staggered back, dropping the rod. I snatched it up and fumbled for the switch. I couldn't find it. The man pushed himself to a knee. I felt a button, small and rubber. I pushed it in, and the end of the rod lit up. I jammed it into his stomach, and he fell back, convulsing. After a few seconds, he went still. I used the rod to push the mask up and reveal his face. Boo! He shouted. My heart jumped out of my chest for just a moment. It settled down only a little when I recognized him. It was my brother. He was sitting up and grinning. He rubbed his shin and winced. Gotcha, he said. What the hell is the matter with you, I yelled. You could have given me a heart attack. My brother shrugged. It's Halloween, he said. What was the matter with you last year when you left that fake horse head in my bed? I held up the rod. And this, I said. Olsen's magic shop, he replied. You'd better apologize, I said. I'm sorry you're a pansy, he replied. He turned to my wife. I actually am sorry to you, he said. Sandy said you'd be out of town. Didn't you see me, said my wife. My brother scratched his neck sh- My brother scratched his neck sheepishly. Not really, he said. It's impossible to see anything in that dog mask. Just get him out, I said. We'll talk about this tomorrow. And leave your spare key. Can I have the rod back? No. Feigning hurt, my brother left. I was still seeing red. I struggled to calm myself down enough to see to my wife. Are you okay, honey? I asked. She shook her head. Can you get me a glass of water from downstairs? She asked. I nodded. I grabbed my phone from the nightstand and flicked on the flashlight to help me guide myself down the stairs. I had just reached the kitchen when a phone call 
came through. Oh god, oh god, oh god! The words tumbled out in a breathless panic. You have to help me. They think I'm crazy. They, they want to lock me up. Her voice was tense, strained like a guitar string a moment away from snapping. Slow down, I said. What are you talking about? We were just laying in bed, she breathed. And this thing came in through the window, out of nowhere, you know? Out of nowhere. It was just a shadow, a man's shadow. Derek tried to fight it, but... Oh God, Derek, it killed Derek. Sandy's voice trailed off. And then what, I said breathless. What happened? It absorbed him, Sandy said. And then it looked just like him. Oh God, I said. I dropped the phone and sprinted upstairs where my brother Derek had just been. The window was open and my wife was gone. Dark Sleep See that lake? Asked Samantha when they arrived. That's Lake Samantha. My dad grew up here. He loved it so much, he named me after it. That night, after they had unpacked their things, the three girls sat around and thought of ways to amuse themselves. Does anyone have any spooky stories? Asked Amber. I have one, said Jenny. It's a true story, too. It happened to a friend of a friend of mine. She was babysitting these two little girls one night. She's sitting in the dark by herself watching TV and the phone rings. She goes over and answers it and hears a voice on the other end breathing really heavy and it says, Have you checked on the children? Jenny, come on, Amber interrupted. Everybody's heard that one. That's the lamest scary story ever. Does anyone else have a story? One that's actually true? I know one, Samantha said. About 10 minutes hike from here, there's an old broken down house. We passed it on the way up here. It's out in the middle of nowhere, tucked off on a narrow little side road. A long time ago, a man lived there. His family was really wealthy and they owned hundreds of acres of land around here. This man met a simple country girl from a simple country town and they fell in love. His family wasn't too happy about it. They didn't think the girl was good enough for him, but he ignored them. He was an independent type of guy and he went off and built a little house on a chunk of their land out in the middle of nowhere. He married this little girl and everything was wonderful. They had a daughter and eventually they had a son. This is where the story starts to go bad. Their son was sick, not physically but mentally. He was sick in the head. He wasn't mentally disabled or anything. He was just a little off. By the time he was nine years old, he became too much for his parents to handle, throwing temper tantrums, erratic sleeping patterns, disappearing into the woods and hiding, that kind of thing. Not knowing what to do about his son, the man turned to his family for help. His parents had the boy taken away. They sent him to a place deep in the woods. It wasn't an insane asylum, but it catered to people with special needs. If you know what I mean. His parents thought it was the best for him. Over time, 
the family got used to not having him around. They gradually stopped visiting him. They functioned as if they had never had a son and everything went back to being wonderful again. Eight years later, the boy who was about 16 or 17 at the time managed to escape from the hospital. The staff did a search, but he was nowhere to be found. His family was notified and they were devastated. They were worried for his safety. He had been alone in the wilderness for weeks and he was probably dead. But the boy wasn't dead. One night, he found his way back home. He crept into his house and one by one, he slaughtered his entire family. His father, his mother, his sister, all of them chopped to pieces. With the blood still dripping from his axe, he disappeared into the woods. When the grisly remains of his family were discovered a few days later, the townsfolk in the surrounding area were horrified. The police tried to find the boy, but it was no use. To this day, he has never been found. Since then, every year, around harvest time, people have started to go missing, and in their place, a corn husk doll would be left behind. Legend has it, the boy still roams the woods around these parts. The surrounding towns have bought into the legend and they hang dolls by their front doors for protection. They say if the boy sees a doll hanging from the door of a house, he will pass that house by and leave the residence in peace. Nobody knows if it's true or not, but there's a doll hanging from the door of every house in town. That's so creepy, cried Jenny. Do you have a doll on your door? Of course, says Samantha. My dad says he doesn't believe the legend, but we hung one just in case. I think I just soiled my underwear, said Amber. Apparently, the house is still haunted by the ghost of his murdered family. And if you go up there late at night, you can hear the whole thing take place all over again. Do you think we can go up there? Jenny asked. Sure, said Samantha. But tomorrow during daylight, there's no sense in tempting fate. That night, the girls slept in the same room and huddled together, trying to pretend they weren't frightened by the story and expecting to hear something tapping at the window at any moment. When they got there, the girls sensed an eerie presence in the old, decrepit place. It was enough to make their skin crawl. They explored the ruins of the old house, peeking into corners and sifting through the rubble. After a while, Samantha spotted something half buried in the dirt. It was some sort of book. She dug it out and dusted it off. The girls gathered around as she opened it and began to flip through the yellowed pages. It's like a diary or something, said Samantha. Maybe it's his diary, Jenny whispered. Whose diary, asked Amber. The guy, said Jenny, the guy that killed his family. Samantha read the diary out loud as the others listened. There's a dedication inscribed in the cover. She said, it reads, To my family who I love and cherish, and who will always be with me. September 5th, 1987. It has been hard alone. All they had to do was talk to me. They could not talk to me. I hear their voices late at night sometimes. I hear their screams. It is cold and dark. I needed love. They did not love me. The medicines are gone. I am free. 
free from all of them. If they could not love me, they had to go. Dark sleep for everyone. I hear their voices still, always screaming. December 4th, 1987. They have stopped looking for me. It is okay for me now. I live in the forest. I chase down the animals and put them in their dark sleep. Just like mom and dad and sis. I visit my old house at night. I listen to the voices. At least they talk to me now. October 3rd, 1995. I left the forest years ago and moved to a small town nearby. Nobody recognizes me. No one knows who I am. I hear people telling my story sometimes. It makes me laugh inside. They all fear me. I still come to the forest sometimes. I spend the nights in my old house. Mom and dad still talk to me. They say they are very proud of me. November 2nd, 1998. Life has been good. I found a job. I bought a house. I met a girl. She's very quiet and pretty. Sometimes I bring her to the forest. She likes it. I let mom and dad see her. They like her. July 1st, 2000. Today is a great day. I have a baby now. I am so happy. Mom and dad are grandparents now. My wife isn't doing so well. It was hard for her. She might not make it. Maybe she will go in a dark sleep. I am happy now. August 13th, 2010. I am so proud of my child. She's just like me. Except she's much smarter. She has no problems. She doesn't hear voices. She goes to school and has lots of friends. Not like me. Sometimes I take her to the woods. I love her so much. I named her after the lake. Samantha. For a few moments after Samantha stopped reading, there was a stunned silence. What the heck? cried Jenny. Samantha, is this some sort of joke? Amber asked nervously. It isn't funny. This, this can't be true, Samantha whispered. It couldn't be, it couldn't be. Just then, they heard the sound of twigs snapping behind them. When they turned around, they saw Samantha's father standing there. There was a strange, pained look on his face and he was holding an axe in his hands. You weren't supposed to find that, he muttered. There's no other way now. Dark sleep for everyone. No, Dad! Samantha screamed. No! 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 When Samantha's father had finished chopping up the bodies... He put the pieces in large plastic bags and buried them deep in the woods. So deep that no one would ever find them. Now they could be together forever. I'll watch over you now, he mumbled as he patted down the earth with his shovel. You may not understand now, but you will in time. This is the only way for us to be together. Dark sleep forever. We all stay together. My fiancé and I threw a dinner party one time to celebrate his mom completing chemo. I hired a caterer. We were expecting 25 friends and family. 
so it was more than the kitchenette of our single-story ranch house could handle. We'd also only just moved in, so didn't have a lot of cooking staples. The caterer said he'd bring something 75% done, but he needed to finish off some dishes in our kitchen. I told him that it was fine as long as he was finished by 5, because the kitchen is literally located, and we'd prefer everyone to be finished before the guests arrive due to the intimate nature of the occasion. He said that would be fine. He arrived as scheduled at 12 p.m. We gave him until 5, and the guests aren't even arriving until 6, so it's plenty of time. He smelled like actual dog crap, but his accent sounded European, so I thought maybe he just didn't believe in deodorant. It was more than the sweat smell, though. It smelled like a sun-baked diaper, and that made me uneasy, because he was going to be preparing food for sick, prior, and young kids. I just made sure he washed his hands, and then left him to his own devices, worrying I was being presumptuous. Throughout the entire process, he keeps pulling me aside to ask me questions, and have me taste things. I was super busy because my husband had to work during the day, and pick up the surprise guest right after, so setting up the deck, decorating, putting together the slideshow equipment, coordinating the surprise guest, and just a million other little details. So every 10 minutes being asked things like, Do you prefer this with paprika or without? With is fine. Whatever you think. Taste to be sure. It was getting old. When he was still there at 5.45, after two gentle reminders, I flat out told him I needed him completely out by 6, no matter what. He apologized and said there had been a delay because our oven wouldn't stay up to temperature. I'd never had a problem with our oven, but I figured he's a professional. Maybe it was a subtle problem. A little before six rolls around, a few of our friends start trickling in. I decide to tell him whatever's done is done, and whatever isn't, he shouldn't just put in the fridge. But he's nowhere to be found at this point. I go out to the deck to ask my friends if they'd seen him, and he's out there, alcoholic beverage in hand, out of his chef whites, and now in a tee and jeans, mingling with my friends. I walked out just in time for him to introduce himself to my cousin-in-laws as a good friend of mine. Nope, too weird for me. I met him in person for the first time barely six hours ago. I told him he needed to leave. Now. So he just goes inside, gets his bag, and makes a beeline for my bedroom. I'm taken aback. I tell him, excuse me, where are you going? And he says, to change. So first of all, we have a guest bathroom, clearly visible. Second, why can't he wear a t-shirt and jeans home? I tell him I'm not comfortable with him going in my room because he insists it's only a second and goes in and shuts and locks the door. I couldn't even get a word out before he went in and felt helpless. I was going outside to ask one of my friends to help me usher him out, but at that point my fiancé got there with my aunt-in-law. I had to explain the situation to him, nearly in tears at that point, and he was like, what? He went into the bedroom. Why? So he pounded on the door, and the caterer came out, still in a t-shirt and jeans, and my fiancé said, you shouldn't be in there, you should leave. The caterer said, excuse me, but this is not your house, it is not up to you to decide, and my six foot four, 260 pound fiancé tells him, yes, 
Actually, this is my house. And puts a hand on his back and guides him to the door. The caterer said, I thought Frantic Slutter lived here. And he says, yes, my fiancé lives here with me. And the caterer goes nuts. He turns to me and screams, you lied to me. You lied to me. I have no clue what he's talking about. He starts yelling about how I led him on and calling me a bitch for some more. I don't know who thought the man in the pictures was with me in the house. So my fiancé says, oh no, you won't talk that way in my house. Find the door. And the caterer goes in the kitchen and starts throwing the trays of food out of the refrigerator and onto the floor. At that point, my fiancé realized two of his brothers had come in and were on the deck. He signaled to them and they came inside and he basically said, this guy is harassing us. Since they're a family of all boys, and my fiancé is the first to get married, they don't get to flex the protective muscles too often, and jumped at the chance to toss this guy out. The party then went on as planned, but I insisted we order pizza and throw out all the food he made. My fiancé and friends keep saying, isn't that a bit much? But I was insistent. We went out late drinking with his brothers and got home around 3.30am and passed out in our room. At around 5 a.m., I was woken up to the sound of the door opening. I figured either we forgot to lock the door in our drunken stupor and it blew open, or one of his family forgot their keys or something in the house and didn't want to wake us. But his parents never, ever, ever let themselves in when they know we're home, and his brother had even more than we did and was definitely not awake and driving around at 5 a.m. It wasn't nearly windy enough for the door to be blown open and it had been tranquil all night. So I woke up my fiancé and whispered, someone just came in the house. And he said the same thing, probably my brother left his wallet or something. I figure I'm being paranoid and try to put it to rest when I hear a loud crash sound. With that, my fiancé was up and on his feet in one movement. He told me to lock myself in the closet and call 911 while he went and looked around. As I was pulling out my phone, we hear the distinct accent, Frantic Slutter? Hello? And I realized it's just this insane caterer. I'm not worried about this caterer physically overpowering my fiancé, or me for that matter. So I charge right out there. The caterer is shirtless and clearly on something. He's taking the pictures that are just of me and take them off the wall and holding several in his arms already. He lunges towards me when he sees me. My fiancé gets between me and him, and I call 911. My fiancé tells him the cops have been called out, and it is in his best interest to get off the property. The caterer says, No. I have to make sure Frantic Slutter is okay. And I say, What? Why wouldn't I be okay? And my fiancé rightfully says not to engage with him and feed into it. My fiancé stays between me and him while I climb out a window. He watches as a caterer throws photos of us out on the floor. He's begun to destroy our kitchen at this point, and when the cops come in, he's got a butcher knife. My fiancé considered going for the gun safe when he first got the knife since we live in a stand-your-ground state, but he decided the situation was hectic enough without introducing a firearm. Caterer doesn't obey the police orders to drop his weapon, and he says he isn't leaving without me. 
so they tase him. It's lucky for him he only got tased, and he didn't antagonize my husband into squashing him. As he's let out in cuffs, he's shouting now. He and I are in love, and I figured I chose a macho thug over a sweet, sensitive artist like him, and all women are whores, etc., etc. He continues on this triad the entire time police are reading him his rights. The police ask us to do an inventory of the house and see if anything's missing or damaged besides what we witnessed him do. We go around, and there's nothing. But then I remember he was in our room yesterday and go through our room. All my panties from the dirty laundry hamper were gone, and some of my unmentionables had been moved from where I kept them. We were so freaked out in the aftermath that we replaced all our kitchen wares, toothbrush, sent our sheets to be professionally cleaned, and had a cleaning crew do a deep clean of the whole house. He sent me letters from prison that thankfully my husband been intercepted. He sent me a letter from the prison that thankfully my husband intercepted because I was still recovering from the whole thing. We gave it to the police who helped us get issued a no contact order. He was sentenced to three years in prison five years ago. So he's out now, but thankfully we did not meet again. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 